Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cinematic Schematic, the official podcast of thecinematropolis.com, your home to thoughtful conversations on film. Today, we're back after a few weeks off with the eighth part in our three films that got you through the 2020 pandemic interview series. Now, in this series, I am speaking with a wide variety of friends, colleagues, and professionals working in the film industry, largely in my backyard of Oklahoma. I'll be speaking with each guest about how the pandemic has impacted their line of work before talking about the three movies that helped them get through it all. And today, I'll be speaking with the managing partner of Tower Theater, the founder of Mostly Harmless Media, and the director of technology at the Dead Center Film Festival, Stephen Tyler. I talk with Stephen about how the pandemic impacted the operations of Oklahoma's historic Tower Theater before discussing how they pivoted in order to keep their film and concert venue afloat during the pandemic. And then, of course... To close out the conversation, I'll do what we always do, which is hear about the three films that Stephen selected for us today. Now, if you enjoyed today's interview, I hope you'll consider leaving us a rating and a review and a follow or subscribe on your preferred podcast app. It is the most impactful way you can support the show at this time. Now, let's talk a little bit more about Stephen. Stephen is one of the Oklahoma City film community's hardest working individuals. I like to think of him as a jack of all trades and all things technology for the Dead Center Film Festival. But again, as I noted a moment ago, he also co-operates Oklahoma's historic Tower Theater. Now, let's talk about Tower Theater here. This is a, a locally owned and independent theater here in Oklahoma City that opened in 1937 and is one of OKC's last original movie houses with an intact auditorium, a neon marquee, uh, among many other things. Now, after many years of movie premieres and historic runs of classic films, uh, the website describes it as the Grand Dame of Uptown. It was reduced to showing adult movies before closing in 1989. And of course, the theater has since been remodeled and reopened uh, in 2016 and 2017, most recently as a music venue, a community event space, and a movie theater. And again, uh, like what Uptown likes to refer to as the crown jewel of Uptown Oklahoma City. Now, of course, the theater did temporarily close down due to the COVID-19 safety and the, the, the dangers of COVID that we experienced last year. But I'm very happy to report that the theater is now open again, playing movies and hosting events in a more limited capacity. Stephen, of course, is also the founder of Mostly Harmless Media, a local business here in Oklahoma City that produces a wide variety of new media content. Uh, and I also like uh, really appreciate Mostly Harmless Media for providing a platform for a number of local podcasts, including our friend Harold Story's podcast, Tunes Tunes. Uh, it also is a provides a platform for Let's Pod This, Mitchell Talks, and then Stephen's very own We Apologize for This Inconvenience, uh, among many many other podcasts that you should all check out over at Mostly Harmless Media's website. Uh, and of course, uh, Stephen and I, we, we partnered together a couple years ago on many different showings over at Tower Theater. Uh, things like Blade Runner. We also watched uh, Batman Mask of the Phantasm. The Cinematropolis was a big part of Ready Player March, a, a really cool little uh, series that we played there down there at Tower Theater. So uh, again, uh, our friendship with the venue goes way back, and uh, we are so thrilled here at the Cinematropolis to see the theater reopen. Uh, again. So without further ado, let's go ahead and move into today's interview to hear from Steven.
Welcome back, everyone. We're here on the Cinematic Schematic with another very special guest. I'm so thrilled to be speaking with uh, a good friend of mine. He's a huge mover and shaker here in the Oklahoma City film scene, um, has been doing a, a number of really wonderful things for our community via all of his awesome work over at the Tower Theater, Steven Tyler. So he's the managing partner at Tower Theater also the director of technology at the Dead Center Film Festival. He's also the founder of Mostly Harmless Media, which produces uh, podcasts, videos, the, the whole, the works in terms of like new media. Steven, welcome to the Cinematic Schematic. Well, thanks for having me. We're here early 2021. I'm sure it was just like the clock ticked 1201 uh, on January 1st and things were, were better. <laughs> how, how are you doing? Yeah. Uh, I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. Uh, the pandemic hit all of our industries pretty hard. Um, starting with tower last year, uh, being an event space and a movie house and a concert venue is not conducive in, in the height of a worldwide pandemic. Um, same kind of wave hit us at dead center. Um, being that we couldn't get our normal 30 plus thousand people together to watch films together. We had to shift that whole thing to, you know, online and virtual and, uh, in the sort of wake of it all, that's kind of where mostly harmless comes into play is, that's my, my fun little business that always is whatever I'm focused on at the time. And that's podcasting and video creation sort of as a constant thread. And, uh, we started getting into live streaming a bit. So that, that sort of ramped up and generally all of that just was a rush and chaos and whirlwind. So here we are back in 2021 now, and it starts to calm down a little bit as right as tower starts looking at a pathway forward and dead center starts looking at ramping up, you know, every time it's Sundance season. And every time that hits, that's when, you know, dead center's right on the horizon. Um, so I expect this year to sort of pick back up with its own new challenges, but for the moment, things are good. We're, we're moving along. Um, and there's a pathway forward on every front. So I'm, I'm happy about that. Yeah. And I mean, uh, the tower theater reopening, uh, I know this will probably be, uh, you know, a little bit dated by the time listeners hear it, but I know that you guys are just now starting to start playing movies. Uh, Minari mm -hmm. is, uh, you guys have on your docket, one of uh, my personal favorite films of, of 2020. Uh, just curious. And we're going to jump into the, the details here, but has it been how, like, what's the, what's the process been like getting things up and moving again after being closed for a few months? Uh, it's been a lot of cleaning. Um, this place does collect dust, um, working through those gremlins that get into the machine. Um, cause you let something sit for six or eight months unused. Naturally something's going to come back. Uh, really it's also been about how you manage the sort of expectations of people and how do you, how do you gauge what the public is ready to do? Are they ready to come back into a bar? Are they ready to come back into a movie theater? Are they ready to come back into a, some sort of an event? Uh, if they are, how far are they willing to go with that? How many other people will they be willing to be around? Um, you know, all the, the various measures that people put into place, like dividers and sanitation and, uh, and all that sort of stuff. So just like trying to figure out what this normal looks like um, has been a weird challenge. Um, it has kind of opened your eyes a little bit to like some things that maybe we should have been doing in the first place. Um, like, should we have been a little more aggressive as a populace with hand sanitizer? Um, are masks really that bad of a thing, especially in wintertime and flu season? Um, you know, watching our staff walk around the building all masked up and be in the kitchen all masked up and stuff like that kind of makes you wonder, like, why, why weren't face masks a thing in kitchens before? And should they be a thing going forward? 
kind of like how we've all sort of shifted over to Zoom calls and stuff for meetings. Like, did I really ever have to go into the office or was that just a construct that we created at some point? Um, so yeah, it's it's been an interesting challenge to get kind of reopening, but it's also allowing us to sort of, we hit the ground running with Tower back in 2017. Um, like we had no time to stop and think about what we were doing. It was an opportunity. We just moved, moved, moved. We signed papers in March to become operators. And by August, we were having concerts, um, you know, going from an empty room to a fully outfitted venue. And then by November, we were doing film, which we had to install a cinema system and all that stuff. So we were moving so fast the whole time we've been open. This actually has been a little bit of a respite for us to like take a breath, stop, and now come back slowly and really dial in and improve everything that we're doing on that front. Uh, so the movie experience is better. Ponyboy experience is better. We have food now. You can order food in our movies. I think now, I think flicks beat us by a few months only because of the pandemic. Um, but you know, we have a, a full service kitchen serving our movies now. So we're, we're trying to find those ways to heighten the experience so that when we come back, it's even a better version of tower. Um, and hopefully we find a way to sort of scale that up back into the full capacities that we were seeing beforehand. You're really just innovating. And, and like you said, you've sort of had to reconsider. I think one thing I've noticed just talking to a lot of people, we've, we've had to reconsider the norms, right? Yeah. Reconsider face masks, reconsider your, your business model, reconsider. I have friends I hadn't talked to in probably like 10 years that I have Zoom called. I was like, why weren't we Zoom calling before? You know, right. just, you know what I mean? Like it wasn't, there was really nothing stopping us, but we've been kind of forced to re, kind of reconsider how we uh, socialize. So, I mean, I think it's um, really exciting to see you guys opening back up. And, and of course, you guys are providing that local flavor with, with the food, um, which I have not tasted yet, but have seen the the photos on social media, and it looks fantastic. Uh, so I know I am very excited to get back into to Tower Theater to check it out. Um, now, uh, Stephen, I, I, want, I do want to talk a little bit about what your day-to-day looks like pre-pandemic because you're you're a really busy guy uh i mean you've got a lot of big ideas you've you've one thing i really admire about you is you've always have a really distinct vision but you also have like a lot of really technical knowledge so you're able to execute and sort of figure out you know sort of like uh reverse engineer your ideas and then figure out how to do it so could you tell us a little bit about like what you do historically pre-pandemic like what does your day-to-day look like or what did your day-to-day look like rather yeah i i have a lot of people that tell me that i have no focus or that I'm doing too many things or that I'm spread too thin or all this stuff. And, and while some, there may be some pieces of truth in there um, because I'm always very much a yes man on things. And I love crazy ideas and I love to just go and do stuff. Um, I always sort of reduce it down to, I've been always, I've been very, always been very good with technology um, starting with the family computer back in the 286 days where you went to the computer shop and you bought your parts and you assembled like the first days of like home computers becoming truly obtainable for a normal family and like being able to just build it and getting infatuated with that stuff. And that, that steered me into finding creative people. And I used to think that I wasn't a creative person until I realized one day that I'm just creative with the technology piece of it. And I've always been really good at that. And so I've always been able to listen to somebody who had an idea about something, whether that's the garage band that I was in in junior high and they wanted to sound better. And I went to the store and bought the gear that made them sound better and understood what the knobs did um, to, you know, Dead Center Film Festival needs to suddenly pivot and take their entire film festival virtual. Um, so I, I would sort of reduce it down to consulting on how 
to get creative people to use technology better to see their vision come to life. Sometimes that doesn't make a lot of sense to people, especially if they're in a, an older format or an older medium. Um, but I, you know, I, I think that there's ways to adapt technology to everything. And so even the day to day was that that's sort of the, the umbrella under which I've always done things. Um, that's why I said yes to dead center when they needed technical support with their ticketing system, which is how that whole ordeal started. Um, it's why I said yes to, uh, the, our partners now in tower when they were struggling to find a decent operator. Um, and I just had that skill set and those resources. Um, so my day to day has always been about technology and about using that creatively. Um, and that, that can underline, I think everything that we, we talk about in terms of what my day to day is. So yeah, if it plugs in, turns on, and you want to make people like go ooh and ah, that's and you can't figure out how, that's that's me. I may not be the best at coming up with the initial idea, um, but I, I love like to take something and like you say, sort of reverse engineer what you need, and then from there I can tell you what else is possible, and that's where it gets really fun when it's like you don't understand why I'm hounding you staff to use this platform, but what you realize is once we're on that platform, it can do these great things. Um, and we can do so much more with it and it makes things so much easier in the long run if we just do it now. So that's been my day to day is convincing people technology is not the devil and you can be creative and it can make your life better. Yeah. And all while running a, running a a local theater and community space for, for both musicians. And I mean, you guys do, I've done a lot of awesome stuff at tower, but that's it, right? Like what tower, my, my ethos at tower from the very beginning was we need to have the best audio visual production in the city, in the state. And it, from the customer's perspective, whether that's you're a ticket holder to a concert or you're the artist on stage or you're the event hosting your event with us, or you're the, the film studio who I booked your film, you want your thing to be executed at the highest level. And so we built a, a room that was so versatile um, I mean, you, you, you've been here a number of times. It's changed slightly. Um, I don't know if you know that we moved some stuff around, but you know, when we first built our room, it was a concert venue on the floor and our cinema system was in the balcony and it was all automated and we could run a 9am conference for the health department and by noon be running matinee films. And by eight o'clock, uh, there's a band taking stage. Like we could do that in a day. And that was what we thought we needed to do to survive. And that's all through creative use of technology. I mean, everything in this room, those turnkey pieces, the automation pieces of it, how everything interacts together. Um, that was the sort of like spin I put on it. It's a lot of people could have opened tower theater and it could have looked a lot of different ways, but that was, that was sort of my take on it is let's leverage this stuff. Let's not, you know, cheap out on a few pieces. You know, there was a, there's a $10,000 light dimmer on the wall. I didn't need, but that's the thing that now makes the movie lights dim at the right time. And it makes the house lights come back on during concerts and it, and it gave us that control from all the different systems. So as much as that seems like it was like a, a waste, it's probably saved us hundreds and hundreds of hours of labor and frustration and annoyance. But really what it, what it translates to is that experience where you've sat down at tower and just like Cinemark or AMC or whoever, when that, logo hits and the lights dim and the trailers play and everything is just controlled and balanced. It's that experience that you don't think about as a person who's just there buying a $10 ticket, but it's behind the scenes somewhere. So 
Yeah, and I mean, it, it really is, I have to say, one of the more versatile spaces I've ever been in. I'm, I've been there for concerts, I've been there for parties, I've been there for movies, and, and you guys really do it all. Now, if you, if you could tell us a little bit about, like, how did this impact, you know, you all's business and, and your day-to-day when the pandemic hit in the, the U.S. and businesses like Tower Theater were forced to, to shut down? Yeah, I mean, we got a little bit of... We had a little bit of premonition that we were going to have to shut down only because as an industry, the concert industry, we're always six months ahead of today. Um, So we're booking shows that far out. Things are on our calendar that far, six months a year out. Um, And a lot of our stuff was tours and people that were coming from other places. And so we actually had a band that was on its way and was in the UK. This is in February when if you recall the timelines, UK kind of was the moment, I think, that the US kind of went, uh, oh, this might be a problem. And the band got stuck there. And so that impacted us immediately. And so in February, we're like, well, if they got stuck there, everybody else is going to get stuck somewhere too. Like this is going to this is gonna hit and it's going to hit us hard. So we kind of had this moment of like, we know this is coming and, and we got ahead of the shutdown from the city level. I think we were a week or two weeks ahead of the, the ordinance that actually shut everybody down. So we kind of saw it coming. We knew it was going to happen. And I mean, the industry was talking like it cause it's, it's a, like I said, we're all touring and all these interconnected dates that if one goes, one domino falls, then you know, the story, the rest go behind it. Um, so it, it impacted us. We kind of, we kind of had a little bit of a buffer, more so than everybody else that we kind of, so we sort of started postponing things and getting ahead of that because the worst thing that could happen to the concert industry without getting too deep into the economics of it is your ticket money is coming into an ecosystem where it's just constantly churning. Um, that money's coming in, it's going out, it's coming in, it's going out, it's all on advances and all that stuff. So the worst thing that could have happened as a concert for the concert industry is for all of these shows to just straight cancel all at once because then all these refunds would be issues and it would just be this mass exodus of cash. I mean, talk about a stock market crash or something like that. It would have, you would have had live nations and, and AEGs going bankrupt overnight. Um, if, if everybody had just pulled their money out suddenly like that. Um, so we kind of braced for that impact, got ahead of a little bit. Um, and those first couple months just kind of sort of were a little worried, but sort of relished in the time down and actually took some time down. And I actually went home, <laughs> um, which was great because so that was sort of February, we're into March, which the shutdown happened in April. Uh, I had a daughter. Um, so it kind of worked out for me that like I was forced to be home for like the first two, three months easy. Um, didn't really start coming back out until sort of summertime. Um, as we started to, we thought things were getting better in June ish. Um, and then they got way, way worse. Uh, so that's been the worst part about all of it is we, we sort of, we batten down the hatches early. We braced, you know, PPP money and all that stuff. Came, and we had resources and we, we lobbied for the city to do some support and they jumped in on it and that helped us out a lot. And so we got the right amount of support to survive it. Um, what really has been hard is the sort of like roller coaster of when is this going to end? Um, and we could not derail into the, the politics of it all, but that's been really frustrating the last half of 2020 is to just be like, okay, which is why we started fighting for federal funding with the Save Our Stages thing. Um, because we saw like, oh, you're not going to 
we're not going to take this seriously. So this is now, this isn't a three month problem anymore. This is a year long problem. Like, and we were saying that again in, in March or April, we were like, 2020 is off the books. Um, 2021 isn't looking so good right now. I mean, by summer of 2020, we were already saying it was going to be fall of 21 before things were coming back. So we were, we knew that that, that long journey was ahead of us. So we started lobbying more and we got that stuff approved through Congress, thank God. And so that's coming. That's going to help. And it's even great because while we didn't do it, the, the concert venues really banded together and, and pushed that legislation through. But at the end of the day, right at the end, they ramped it up by another $5 billion and they lumped in movie theaters and museums and other ticket-based sort of events. So independent, mind you. Um, so honestly, like I feel really great that Save Our Sages sort of morphed into what they called the Shuttered Venue Operators Grant. Not nearly as cool of a, of a name as Save Our Sages, but so really that's that we just kind of paused and now we're sort of on the other side of like, we see the relief coming. We see the light at the end of the tunnel and the pandemic vaccines are going out. Numbers are dropping. Um, it seems like there's better leadership in the white house. I'll leave it at that. Um, so we're like, okay, now we can kind of start coming back out of our shell a little bit and take a few risks and start operating. Cause that's the other thing that sucks is we essentially have been sitting on this pile of money to survive and, we can open and pay people and buy product and have more expenses, but that money is going to go faster. And if we don't have the capacity and the revenue to come back and offset it, then it's a loss. And then we can't, we can't survive like that. Obviously no business can. So really the question now becomes when can we get our capacity back to that threshold? Um, we are, we're, our economics are completely driven by just a number of people. I, I need 500 people at a concert in this building to make it make sense. So now when can I get 500 people? When are, when are people going to be comfortable enough to be crammed in a room with 500 people? Uh, and that's the game we're playing now is what can we do? How can we be um, biding our time and being safe and smart? Um, so pony boy reopening with limited capacity and even film coming back, we've reduced the capacity on our floor. We've done the social distancing thing. Uh, it's a seated floor that I could normally fit 450 people on if I did theater rows and I've got a hundred seats down there. I mean, so we're not even talking about 50%. We're talking like less than 25%. Um, so that's where we are now. And, and we're, I mean, this isn't a currently, I'll be very candid with you. There's not, this is not currently a viable business model. It doesn't work. Um, and it won't work until we hit that scale again, or we find our ability to make it so great and effective um, that it can be. And that's, that's an interesting new light that's shown up mid tunnel to continue the analogy is um, we actually see like there might be a way for us to operate at this level and break even at least um, possibly even move into the profitability range, which is an interesting, it's a, it's a, it's a reality we would never have considered that we could have gone from doing 150 concerts plus movies, plus events, plus the, a year I mean, we were averaging, I did the math in 2019, we averaged um, one point, like 1.4 events a day in 2019. Wow. So like literally, I mean, some, most of that was two, three things a day, like I was saying before, but it, it averaged out to an event every day. Like that was our pace to run. And now we're like the bars open five days a week and we're doing like three movie shows a week and 
we're not far off from that mark. Um, some of it is people are, are, are willing to come out right now. And we've, we've modified some things and adding food adds revenue and all this other fun stuff. So we're just being super creative right now and trying to figure it out. But um, yeah. And I mean, I think I want to follow up on that piece there. I think it's a twofold question. Um, I think the first part is maybe you've already talked a, a lot about like just at a, at a high level, like what did it look like when you shut down and you know how you guys have been, seems like ahead of the curve and you were able to pivot really successfully so that you're in a, at least in a somewhat secure position as long as far as you can be uh, a theater in a pandemic tactically what sorts of things did you you all have to do as a leadership team over at tower in order to sort of um, reach that point where you're you could feel okay about where you were at and then the second part of that question is you know with that in mind seeing the sort of revenue opportunities that you've been able to launch in the last uh, you know couple of months do you actually foresee tower coming back stronger uh, once we kind of return to a quote unquote new normal yeah for sure um, so strategically what we did to get here was uh, I mean I think we did what a lot of people did we obviously we shut down when we shut down that meant unfortunately we laid off people um, we scaled back staff. We kept some core team members um, for a couple reasons. We we couldn't let our momentum completely die. We don't want our social media channels going dark. We don't want our emails going dark. Even if we don't have events to talk about, we found other things to talk about. Save our stages. We got behind that lobbying and became a very strong voice. Um, we we got really. We tried to lend our voice and our reach to. Um, some of the civil rights stuff that was going on by using our marquee. You know, we have a, a beautiful marquee out here that sees 30,000 cars a day. So us even doing, you know, putting George Floyd quotes up there or or things like that have a huge impact in the city. It sends a message to the city that that's where our our hearts and minds are. And so we, we got creative on keeping our voice alive, um, which I think is something the city has always seen that, uh, me and my my primary day to day business partner Chad, we're always very vocal. We're very visible as we are the people that are here doing this. Um, our team is very visible, and we've always been about that. Like this is a local neighborhood movie theater concert venue. Like that's what we want. We we want that that vibe, and so we've always tried to connect with the city like that. And we leaned into that a lot. Um, we got creative and did a live stream series, like everybody did. Um, and that worked really well and it let us play around with a, you know, and, and that's, that's something I think strategically did. We, we played around with a few ideas we'd been sort of skirting. Like I've been saying for a couple of years, the entire team, it's like we could knock a live stream, a multi-camera live stream at any one of these rooms easy, but adding that to the chaos of everything I was talking about, which is there was never time to think about it. Uh, now there was time. So I think that's where we got the, that was the strategy is like I said, batten down. <laughs> we took every, I mean, we took every piece of financial support we could get, PPP loans, EIDL loans, the city grants, the, the federal grants, um, because we have to. Um, there's still bills to pay. There's still, we have loans that have payments due, and some of it was deferred. You know? And we, we did everything we could possibly do from that side of things. We Any bank that we worked with that would work with us, we deferred loan payments. We, we did all that sort of stuff. Um, so we did our due diligence to be like mindful business people and worry about the bottom dollar, but at the same time trying to like keep people as employed as we could. Some staff went to halftime, our social media digital marketing guy went to halftime, our events person went to halftime. 
Um, we started selling a lot of merchandise online. We did, you know, a lot of people pivoted to that early on and we did record numbers out of our merch store and there are more tower theater shirts out in the world now than there ever have been. Um, and that ultimately to kind of leads into your second part of the question, which is, do I think it will come back stronger? And I have absolutely zero doubt that it will come back stronger. In fact, it's going to be interesting to look back on this years from now, because I will probably have the perspective of it's the best thing that could have happened to us. Obviously I am not saying the best thing that could happen to us as a society is hundreds of thousands of people dying from this virus. I'm saying the, the circumstances that shut us down and gave us that time to sort of really think about our business and, and to reopen on what somebody would consider a normal opening schedule. I mean, if you're opening a restaurant, or anything, you work on it, you soft open, you tweak, you lean into it before you really start hammering for that heavy service. And we never got that chance. So we had that chance now. Um, and so, yeah, I think we'll come back stronger because we've learned a lot and we've added a lot of interesting tools to our arsenal that we didn't have before. Um, like live streaming and, and doing that stuff. It's literally, it's another one of those systems that's now just turnkey in house. Like, um, we're, we're opening another venue. Uh, we were planned to open it in 2020. It's called Beer City Music Hall. I'm, I'm repping the jacket. Um, it makes for great radio stuff. Let's talk about a thing you can't see, but um, it looks it's great, our, listeners. It's a it's a great yeah. looking jacket. I, I I do like it quite a bit. And the back has got a pretty cool artwork on it. Um, but we had been working on it for two years prior to 2020, knowing that we have our hundred capacity, 150 capacity Pony Boy, and we have our thousand capacity Tower. And Tower can scale down to a about 700, 600 and still feel like a comfortable space, but you start getting less people than that. You lose the energy of a room full. Um, and so that the, there's a 500 level uh, club that's very popular around the country and they're in every city and we just don't really have one here. So it was just like we didn't have the thousand capacity tower venue in Oklahoma City five years ago. We don't have that 500 capacity room in Oklahoma City. We've got like a nice 200 something at the 89th Street Collective and what Nick is doing over there. And he, same thing. If you look over at, at that place, uh, I realize you're a film podcast, but it's a music venue. Uh, he took the opportunity. He took the, the, the financial support. Um, he had a, an insurance event that caused a big claim and he took all of that money and reinvested it into what had formerly been one of the, like kind of the nastiest little hole in the wall of the venues with like water leaking in on the ceiling and like the men's room are no, doors in the stalls and there's a hole to the outside parking lot kind of thing to it's beautiful. Now he redid the facade. He redid the bathrooms. He put a new roof on. He got new HVAC. Like he has reinvested in himself in that space. And we're going to be better for it after the fact. So the music industry for sure is, is, is of the opinion that this is a, this is a, a slingshot type snapback. Like all we have done is been pulling and pulling this. And the second we let go, it's going to rocket. I mean, the second people feel truly confident, um, I have no doubt if, if somehow I could Thanos snap overnight, everybody getting vaccinated and this disease going away, we would be overwhelmed tomorrow. Everything with our, our count, everything we have on the calendar would sell out. Our bar would be packed. People would just rush out of their houses to find whatever they could do. Um, so I don't think we're going to see that sort of snap type situation. Cause unless Biden really just kicks ass and produces 300 million vaccine doses overnight and somehow manages to get them into everybody in the country and, and convinces everybody to take them. Um, 
then we're not going to see it. But what we are, we are going to see that res- that response. And so we're opening Beer City. We're, we didn't let this de- deter us or think that we didn't need it. We think Oklahoma City has a trajectory it's been on for 20 plus years now, um, fueled by things like maps. And we have this new convention center and we have this new hotel, which is amazing. And it's increased our capacity. And on the other side of that, what happened was our old nasty convention center, you know, this uh, got turned into one of the largest film studios in uh, maybe some of the bigger sound stages in the country. Like that's a huge space. And now it's a soundstage right in the heart of Oklahoma city. And like, I remember conversations two years ago with people at film and music and dead center and uh, people that were coming into California from California to Oklahoma city and talking about the need for this and, and, Across the pandemic, we gained two because we have the one downtown with Prairie Surf, but we've also got Green Pastures out in, in Spencer, which is also training people. Um, and they were super smart because in the middle of the pandemic, they were like, hey, if you've been fired from your job, come take our six-week course and get trained to work on a movie set. And a bunch of people shifted their role. So like Tower's in a great place, music industry-wise. I feel like we're in a great place film industry-wise because I think like I mentioned to you prior to, to starting the, the session is... I've never had this much luck getting film studios to send me film. Um, I'm a, I'm a single screen little house that has a really dirty screen by that. It's an industry term for like, I have one or two time slots a week. Maybe I can throw your film up uh, because I got concerts and events and everything going. But right now, right now the the screen's clean and I've got weeks, you know, I gave earwig and the witch um, from studio Ghibli and G kids. I gave them two and a half weeks because I had it. Like what the heck else am I going to put on the, on the calendar? Um, you know, we, we booked. And so we're, that's what they've been wanting, but also there's, I would, if I had to like guess, I'd say 40% of screens in the country are open. Maybe if, if I just I'd say took less a guess, than that, less than that. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I don't know a lot of the big, a lot of the big chains haven't really, I don't think ramped back into it too much yet. So like right now they're desperate to get stuff on screen. Um, and people are people are coming, not not hundreds and hundreds of people like they used to. But again, you know, uh, our first screening of Minari as of recording this um, has 20 tickets sold and it's been on sale for like two days. That's really good numbers for us on a normal day, like to have that kind of momentum. We're two weeks out from that screening at this point. So, um, you know, I would almost expect that screening might sell out, uh, which would kind of be nuts. Um yeah, I mean, I, I wonder too. Like with the you use the slingshot analogy with the music industry, I I I, I seriously wonder if the, if the film industry is in the same in the same space. I know there's a there are a few things, other factors there, like streaming services like Netflix and um, you yeah. know Hulu, and are, are obviously more competitive in that space. But I don't know. I mean, I'll tell you what. I was just talking to someone earlier today about uh, the little things uh, and it's a movie uh, that hit HBO mm-hmm. max one of their day of releases, you know, and I, I seriously was like, I, I, you know, there was a lot of people up who didn't like it on the internet and we were talking about how we both thought it was, you know, pretty solid. I was like, well, you know what though? It's kind of funny is if this had come out like in theaters one, I actually think I would have enjoyed it more because I would have been less distracted and I could hone in on it a little bit more. And two, um, you know, I, how much would people be really be talking about <laughs> talking about it? You know, I don't know. I just feel like there's a huge appetite for people who like going to the movies to, to go back and see stuff. I, yeah. I, I swear, like I'm probably going to go to the movies every day, the week yeah. that I feel comfortable going back, you know? Yeah. No, I mean, I, one of my, uh, one of my films, not to jump into that, but one of them that I want to talk about, 
I very much 1000% know I would be so enwrapped by this movie at this point had I seen it on the big screen because I know watching it on my 40 inch TV in my bedroom, I did not lock into it like I would have. And it was definitely one of those films that you needed to lock into it. Um, so I, I don't want to start talking about it cause I don't want to jump, jump too far ahead, but. Uh, we're very close. Uh, well, uh, thanks, uh, Stephen, for giving us sort of the, the rundown of all the, the, the things happening that you guys did at Tower last year just to pivot and survive. And all things considered, uh, I'm glad you guys have been able to sustain it as a, a, a business. And it sounds like things are looking as soon as th- people are more comfortable going back out, uh, like it really is going to be, you know, an even stronger beacon for our community than it already was uh, beforehand. So I'm really excited about that. I did want to touch on a little bit, and this is mostly for people who didn't catch you and I's conversation we had over the summer where you actually talked a little about your role with Dead Center. Yeah. So I'm just curious. Firstly, I want to say congratulations. Um, again, I know I said that when I talked to you earlier this summer, but also I really enjoyed the film festival. From my perspective, I had like zero tech issues and was able to do it and come from my home. So it was great. Yeah. Uh, but maybe if you could, for listeners who didn't catch that conversation, could you tell us a little bit about uh, how you were able to use you know your resources and skill set to help ensure the film festival made that transition to the, the fully virtual model. Yeah, uh, for sure. The the great thing about that is I, I mentioned at the beginning of this episode that I started my role at Dead Center dealing with their ticketing and pass system because they they were very rudimentary when I started working with them. And we've gone through two or three major iterations of that from a custom trying a custom built solution to um, ultimately finding a provider. And two or three years ago, we found a provider called Eventive. Um, They were relatively new. It's a father and son team, actually, out of, I want to say like Michigan or Wisconsin or something. And they had been the helm of a film festival up there that was pretty big for years. Long story short is they built a product they wanted and then realized there was more money for them, I guess, in, in selling that product than trying to, I think they still do their film festival, but I think they've handed it off to other people now. Um, so we landed on them and it was, it's another one of those cases where there was Alex and I both, when we kind of started talking to them and used the platform and tested it out for the first year, we kind of got a sense of like, yeah, this is, these are the people we need to be with because it was the kind of people you could get into a text message or an email thread or a Slack thread with, and be like, hey, this doesn't, this seems weird the way this works. Can it work like this? Because, you know, we do this with our people. And oh, that's a great idea. And four hours later, the email's back. Hey, refresh your browser. That feature's been added kind of stuff. And so we had adopted that platform. And the reason that's important to answer your question is they, and that's that sort of like-minded, use the right technology. Maybe it doesn't make sense now, but I promise it'll make sense later. Um, there's something about it. And they had already begun work on a sort of virtual video on demand type integration with their system, because that was already starting to become a part of festivals. Um, and even if it wasn't for the public, there was a lot of that back channel stuff of like getting screeners to certain judges or whatever. And, or, you know, maybe, you know, there's a really great distributor that you had on slate to come in, but they, missed a flight or something had they broke their leg and they couldn't make it, but you still want them to see the film. So you need to give them a secure way to access that stuff. So they weren't seeing it. I don't think they were seeing it as a full, like take a whole festival online thing, but they had already started to work on it. And so when the pandemic hit, 
that's when they were like, oh, we, we need to ramp and scale this real fast. And so they were, they came to us before we even started thinking about what platform should we use and said, we're going to have a platform and it's just going to integrate into your ticketing and your people are going to, it's going to feel so comfortable. They don't have to learn or knew anything. And that was huge for us because as I said, we started with ticketing. We'd gone through two or three iterations of different ticketing over the years. And you've been a long time dead center person. You can probably look at from the outside and see that how we've changed things over and over again. Um, and so we were really apprehensive about like having to find something entirely new to kind of redirect everybody to. So the fact that it was there and also dead center already had put passes on sale. So it just made it super easy. We didn't have to do anything. We just had to add, add the films in. And so when that took that sort of chunk of how are we going to deliver this stuff, the core components of the festival, like the films, how are we going to deliver that to our pass holders? Oh, problem solved. Checkbox. Great. That really kind of freed up the bandwidth of everybody to start thinking about, okay, now how can we make this feel like dead center? Again, our, our focus became how do we, we know how we're going to get films to people. How do we make this dead center? Um, dead center is known for a lot of things, beyond the films it's known for networking it's known for parties it's known for all sorts of things um i actually i know two or three filmmakers that in the last couple of years of dead center like i was there when they met and then i was there the next year when they had collaborated on a film and then i was there the next year when they were back and and had one other festival like watching those sort of interconnections and so it's like that's where we started to get kind of crazy with using whatever technology we could get our hands on that people were comfortable with. So zoom was a big part of it. Um, we did so many freaking zoom calls and I, I was exploring like four other platforms beyond zoom at the time. Cause I was looking for something slightly better and Streamyard popped up and restream IO popped up and all these people started popping up and you could see everybody racing to the top. But by the time they got there, we were already done. So um, and so then like, to your point, like what resources I had to bear, well, I had a production company that was very well versed in things like live streaming and things like producing new media type content, like podcasts, and whatever. Um, I had a giant venue that was empty. Um, I had audio video texts that had no jobs, <laughs> nothing to do. Um, so we pretty much just kind of took all those core pieces and shipped them all downstairs to the main room and kind of built this impromptu production facility inside of tower in the different spaces. And we had all these rooms and different stuff. So we were able to do stuff in the studio here. We set up a system in pony boy. We set up systems in the main room and produced, I think the count was, I want to say it was like 100 or 200 hours of content. Like, we basically produced the DVD extras for all the dead center stuff. Like every single film had a Q and a afterwards. And, um, there were all sorts of, they did all the awards virtual and we even, um, it was right when I think zoom had like just added this feature for the breakout rooms. Like we were, we were banging our heads against the wall on how to do, uh, the distributor forums. That's where dead center lures in distributors and, literally gives filmmakers time to meet one-on-one. -on -one. Even if it's five minutes, you get five minutes with so-and-so from Magnolia Pictures or whatever. Um, and how are we going to do that and recreate that? And the Zoom breakout rooms would solve that problem for us because it let us have a call and then it let us like 
curate and schedule time and you can move people into rooms, people. And so we were able to like recreate those other key pieces of dead center. Um, the one thing we couldn't really figure out was parties, but we did some stuff. Um, we had a nice little sort of wrap up at Jones with a limited audience and did a live stream thing there. So yeah, it was, it was just kind of a perfect storm of like, we had resources and people and skills and dead center needed to just ramp this up overnight. And, and we were just sitting here kind of waiting. So it just sort of all worked out like that. Um, it was a huge learning curve and we stumbled along the way and, but, uh, it, it worked and somehow we pulled it off. You know, the, the film festival is in June and, you know, things that started shutting down in March. So you, you know, it's not like, you know, we had Sundance is, is just now wrapping up, but they had a whole year, a whole year to, to, to plan yeah. to figure out, okay, how are we going to do this? What can we do? I mean, there were still so many unknown variables, even with the disease itself, whenever you guys were, I'm sure we're planning in like April and May. So just made it a lot more, uh, I'm sure a lot more challenging uh, under the, that timeline. But yeah, I mean, you guys, you guys pulled it off and I think it was a tremendous event and um, I'm really looking forward to seeing how, you know, how that shapes up uh, in 2021. Uh, and on that note, just last question before we move into the three films that you picked to get you through the 2020 pandemic, how is 2021 looking for you comparative to last year? You already talked a little about Tower Theater, but what about Dead Center? It's looking good. Like I said uh, before, a lot of the things that we've learned along the way I think will persist. I think Dead Center will probably always have a virtual component now going forward. I mean, why? why not? if the filmmakers are into it and we've got a system that everybody's comfortable with and use. And so that's another great thing is like that conversation. Um, and there was a bit of it back then too. Like how do you convince a film that maybe already has distribution with Sony? How do you convince Sony that your platform is okay to share that film? That's they're hedging their bets on for the box office. And it's like, you have to have like, you know, that was the thing that happened. We we were able to say things like Netflix grade encryption because that's what Eventive did and that's how they worked. And so now we've already jumped those hurdles. It's not a question anymore. Like you've already agreed that that's okay. Um, so why not keep doing it? Now we still want to get back to full and I don't think the decision has ultimately been made yet on what's going to happen um, in terms of physical presences and actual events. Uh, I suspect there will be some, and I suspect there'll be more than there were last year. Cause I think by the time dead center rolls around at current trajectories, things will be less crazy than they were back then. Plus, like you said, we know a lot more now about what this whole deal is and what's happening. And if we scale back the virtual and add in some physical stuff, that's going to create a, an, an even more interesting dynamic of the festival. And I think we're going to get to see how that stuff interacts and plays. I'm excited for it because I have a tendency to never see films at dead center because I'm always too busy doing something else. So like the idea that I could swing home at night on Friday at 2 AM after a party or whatever and plop in my bed and click into the virtual platform and watch that shorts program that I missed that that's a huge deal to me. And, and to me, I think that could keep the festival going basically 24 seven every single, every single day that it's launched. It also, we also doubled the length of the festival last year, whereas it has usually been like five days, like Wednesday through Sunday kind of a deal. We're taking some of the stuff and we're taking the opportunity to expand on that because we've now learned how to keep people engaged in a festival for two weeks. You know, we can hype you up and, and tease you some stuff on the virtual platform for days, maybe before the actual stuff starts. 
Right, and you can uh, you can recruit Martin Scorsese to appear at your festival, right? I mean, yeah. you know, not 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 a bad bonus, right? <laughs> I forgot about that. That's how crazy it is. I forgot that we had a video message from Scorsese. I mean, heck, he might he might be here for the next Dead Center, right? So fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. bring on uh, Killers of the Flower Moon. I think is the name of the movie. Yeah, yeah. Well, very cool, uh, Stephen. Well, thanks for just sharing a little bit about your story this last year. Uh, I know for a number of theater um, owners out there, especially the, the independently owned ones like uh, Tower Theater, have have been sort of highlighted as one one of the areas that have struggled. But um, really excited to hear that things are seem to be trending in a positive direction heading into the new year. Now, let's go ahead and shift gears to something a little more fun. Uh, I've asked you to select three different films that uh, helped get you through uh, what was an especially challenging year, I think, for for most everybody. And I'm really excited to hear what you picked. Um, now, uh, I, you know, in, in no particular order, let's go ahead and jump into the the three picks. So what is the first movie that comes to mind? Uh, the first movie that comes to mind is my default movie that gets me through life in general. Um, and that that is maybe a strange, maybe it's not, but it's Interstellar. is the mission we were trained for. I've got kids, Professor. Get out there and save them. That movie came out at a time in my life where I was going through a lot of transitions and it was just so big and grand and I saw it on IMAX the first time and uh, it was just so great. That's I watched that movie a couple times a year normally. Um, and it's kind of a feel good movie for me in a weird way. Um, cause it gives me hope that the human race might actually survive the long run. Um, and, and I'm a big Christopher Nolan fan and I'm a huge Hans Zimmer fan. And I, I think that film is fantastic. And obviously there's a lot of stuff in that film and a lot of nods to, to other films that are fantastic, but, um, I've recorded many, many hours of podcasts about that film myself had many conversations about that film. I have deconstructed that film. I have analyzed that film. Um, so that's that, that's always going to be on my list of, of films that get me through any time. I have to ask, because I feel like this is a conversation I've heard occur online, specifically around Interstellar, uh, you being a new father this year, uh, which, by the way, congratulations. Thank you. Um, did, you know, when you watched Interstellar this year, did it take on any sort of like new meaning or ha- resonate with you differently? <laughs> Oh yeah, definitely. Um, that, uh, you know, that, that scene where he's getting the messages that have been queued up for 22 years and he just watches his kids basically grow up in the span of hours instead of year decades. Um, McConaughey did a really great job. I feel like I've just like, you see that just sort of like to deconstruct him in that moment. Um, and he loses it. Um, but especially I had a daughter and so especially his relationship. And, and that's the moment that like she kind of snaps back in after a complete disconnect from all that time. And, you know, they ended their whole relationship kind of in a bad way. That scene already would break me down on any given day. Um, but like being able to put myself in that shoe of like, can you even imagine what it would be like to be to be a week out from seeing your seven year old? And suddenly she's 39 or whatever, like, or 30, you know, and, and she's kind of pissed at you still and hasn't really forgiven you. And like, 
God, that would, I, yeah, I don't even know. I mean, my, my daughter hasn't even said a word to me yet. And I feel like if I, if I got my relationship at that point with her, it would just destroy me. So it definitely took on a new meaning. Um, just being able to actually empathize with that, like having a daughter and, and, and all of that. So yeah, it, it, and that's what I love about interstellar is I can nerd out about that film totally about all of the science and, 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 and pieces of it. And at the flip side, I can turn around and nerd out about that film, about all of the emotional like undertones and all of the, the symbolism and all of the things. And then you can kind of zoom out from it as a whole and, and realize that it's some kind of weird time loop. And, you know, it's, a, it's buried in there as a time travel film. And that's like one of my favorite sort of subgenres of, of movies is anything involving time travel. I think that's one of the beautiful things about, you know, Christopher Nolan films in general, but I think interstellar, I, I think it's probably one of his, certainly one of his more emotional movies, but like, you know, there's a lot of layers to it. I, I feel like whenever you watch a, a Chris Nolan movie, you almost never see it the same same movie twice because either your perspective is different because you have more knowledge, maybe you, or maybe you're in a different chapter of your life. So certain characters you gravitate towards differently. He just does a really fantastic job at creating movies and experiences that you can just watch over and over again and feel like yeah. it's new every time. I think I've, I've, I've similarly liked you with interstellar inception. I think I've probably seen that movie like 20 yeah. plus times and it, and it always, the 10th anniversary was this past year and I watched it for the first time in a couple of years and I was like, wow, this still feels crazy fresh. It still feels like it holds up. And uh, one of the things I think that sets him apart is a, a, one of at least one of our generation's finest filmmakers. Uh, I am curious. I have to ask if we're talking about Christopher Nolan, though. Did you have happen to watch Tenet yet? That's that's on this list. Um, and it's on this list for a different reason. That's the film I was referring to earlier that I know I'm not appreciating Tenet still because I haven't seen it on a big screen. I just know I'm not. All I have for you is a word. Tenet. It'll open the right doors. Some of the wrong ones, too. Use it carefully. I, I put it on the list as a film that got me through because the anticipation of seeing that film kind of dragged me through 2020. I wanted to see, cause I am a huge uh, Christopher Nolan fan and not to, I, I didn't choose this as my third film, but like I actually just watched Dunkirk throughout the pain, pandemic. Uh, we screened it here and I just didn't have, I didn't have time. And so I finally was like, Oh man, how can I, I haven't watched this yet. I have to watch this. And it was kind of, it kind of gave me a little bit of my Christopher Nolan fix uh, to get me through to tenant. So yeah, I tenants on the list because I, I, I was so looking forward to seeing it. Um, and so excited about it and I'm still excited and I'm, I'm reserving my ultimate judgment on the film until I can truly watch it um, in, in a theater and, and really like focus on it and give it some time. Cause I give it some time. Uh, it's definitely a film. I think I'm going to have to watch like probably five times before I really wrap my head around it. Um, and I had a, a, a strange thought the other day that it's the first movie I've ever wanted to watch backwards because <laughs> it occurs to me like about half the film will be forwards if you watch it backwards. So like, mm -hmm. and, and I'm wondering, I'm kind of wondering like, has that happened yet? Like have, have people played it backwards? And you know, that, remember back in the, in the day people were like spinning records backwards because they thought there were messages to Satan and lyrics or whatever. It's like what weird hidden crap is in that movie that we aren't seeing because 
We're not processing the information properly because whatever that is is happening is happening in reverse, whether it's a sound or a visual or something that's there could be stuff in the background going on backwards that we never notice until you watch it forward. And you're like, oh, crap, that bird's flying forwards now. And then you create a whole conspiracy theory around why the bird's flying forwards when you play the movie backwards. Yeah. 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 Why is yeah, the bird definitely... going backwards instead of, you know. Did it get into that chamber? Or what? I still don't fully understand it. Um, you know, if you if you play Robert Pattinson backwards here, he's actually saying release the Snyder cut, but only if you play it backwards. You know, yeah, yeah right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I have to say that that's a uh, I'm with you on that one. I've now seen Tenet twice. Um, I own it on the 4K Blu-ray, but I really and I'm probably going to watch it again on home video. But to your point, that is a movie that demands the theatrical. Uh, theatrical experience and uh, i am very hopeful that when theaters are fully reopened i mean i know like tower you guys have historically done this a a lot but like just the opportunity to see those movies that maybe we didn't get to see on the big screen this past year wonder woman 1984 being another one um i'm really excited to like when we start going back be like hey there's like these five movies i watched at home that i wouldn't have otherwise that we can now play on a play on a big screen yeah yeah no i i'm i'm excited for that too because i i think one will be able to participate in that because normally we wouldn't be a, a house that would have first run giant studio films like Wonder Woman or stuff like that. But they they dropped it into some indies. I think Rodeo had it on the day it hit HBO Max. Like, and that's that's crazy. That would never happen <laughs> ever in in the post in the pre pandemic world um, because that would be given up. You know, AMC would come in and be like, "Oh, I'm not going to show any of your films if you." give it to the small guys but then amc's dark so you know what do you, what do, you do um so yeah I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to that and i'm looking forward to getting back to some of the like fun stuff we would do here at tower like i i truly will find out and whether they say it's okay or not i will probably host a night where i play tenant forwards and then backwards <laughs> yeah I, I probably will host that maybe it's me and you and like 10 other people but that will yeah. happen um you know, and I'm not obviously I'm not going to get a, a studio DCP of that backwards. I'm going to have to make that one. But, um, you know, stuff like that and getting back into to themed programming. And um, I ended up in a random Twitter conversation with some people that are I've known that friends of mine that are my peer group, but they're not in films, but uh, they're musicians. And we all honed in on sneakers um, in this Twitter thread. It's just like, I don't know, somebody started with like most underrated score in history. And I was like, Oh my God, I know like that's the James Horner score is amazing. And, yes. and then somebody else tried to be like, Oh God, yeah. We could, da, 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 da. And they were talking about the musical theory of it. And I was like, we're, we're hosting a discussion about this. We're, we're going to show it. We're going to host a discussion. I don't know when, but it's on the book somewhere. We'll pencil it in somewhere and, and do it. And it's stuff like that, like getting back to enjoying those movies. And that's stuff like I've been obsessed with sneakers like my whole life. And primarily because of the score, and it's interesting because I think I was introduced to that film through the score. Um, I remember being given the sneaker soundtrack by uh, a guy on the band bus. And he was like, oh, check this out. Because it it had all that great um, woodwind and clarinet. I was a clarinet player. And so it had all those great melodies and stuff. In it. And he's like, you've got to listen to this. You love it. And I was like, this is a movie soundtrack? I have to see this movie. And then he watched the movie. And I'm like, that is such a weird pairing of this like weird heist comedy movie with this really ethereal like awesome sound like it was just it's such a weird thing and weird cast of characters too like 
Well, it's worth talking about too. And I think that's just, I mean, one of the things that you guys have um, always done a really great job about is, is not making it's, I mean, tower theater is not just a place that plays the movies. You guys, yeah, you have the theme, um, you know, you have the theme projector club, you know, like months or, or whatnot. Um, yeah. uh, you know, we, we, uh, you know, I really enjoyed working with you on like all the different, um, yeah, the, the projector club stuff, uh, we, you know, doing like one or two movies a month, uh, just mm-hmm. getting people to, together to talk about it. And we had some, we had some real bangers where people would hang out, you know, you get like yeah. 20 plus people hanging out just to listen to, you know, local experts talk about stuff. So it's, it's a really great, community space that you guys have built there and uh like you said earlier it's just uh just a matter of time before we can all hop back in uh so very exciting um so let's move on to your third film though we've got uh, interstellar and we've got tenet so what exactly is your third pick for us i struggled with this because like i i sort of mentioned to you earlier i don't i'm having trouble remembering everything i watched in 2020 mostly because i don't know that i watched that much i was gonna see if you'd let me st- stretch the 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 rules here a little bit because I want to talk about it. It's not a movie. It's a television show. <laughs> yeah. The lines are blurry right now. Let's take advantage of it. Well, well then I want to talk about Mandalorian. Show me the one whose safety deemed such destruction. You must reunite it with its own kind. Where? This you must determine. The songs of eons past tell of battles between Mandalore the Great and an order of sorcerers called Jedi. You expect me to search the galaxy and deliver this creature to a race of enemy sorcerers? This is the way. My argument was going to be it's being shot and treated so much like a movie and it's coming from a huge cinematic universe of so many other movies that like it could have been a movie. And it's one of those things that like, not to heart, but like same thing that George Lucas would have made this a film and would have fucked it up. <laughs> right. <laughs> but to make it, it's, it's those things we've had. Like uh, I'm a huge fan of a great example of this. I'm a huge fan of the Stephen King's dark tower series. I literally think it might be the greatest book series ever, at least for me. It's sci-fi, it's fantasy, it's weird, it's drama, it's horror, it's it's everything. And they made that into a movie. They made it into one movie. And it's eight books that total probably like 45,000 pages or something. And you made it into one movie. When there had been all this talk about, oh, it's going to be a movie, and then there's going to be a miniseries connecting it, and then another movie, you know. And it's kind of like what the model we're seeing now with Disney and, well, pretty much Disney with Marvel and 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 star Wars doing these series like Mandalorian and WandaVision and all that stuff. And we could all, oh, we could talk about WandaVision too. Um, <clears throat> but I'll, I'll focus on Mandalorian, but really, what really I love about Mandalorian and why I was going to argue to talk about it. And why it got me through was one season two was f- phenomenal, possibly perfect. Um, but two, I am so infatuated with how they shoot that film, that movie oh, that yeah. series, how they produce that to me, like, I don't think, and I, t- I tell people this all the time when I start talking about Mandalorian, like, oh, God, you're another one of these Star Wars nerds going to talk about Mandalorian and about Boba Fett and whatever. I'm like, I could honestly, we could talk about Mandalorian and not talk about any of that. And I'm just going to talk to you for two and a half hours straight about the technology they're using mm-hmm. behind the scenes. And as I said, I'm a technology person. So that kind of stuff, when I first, 
like I think after the first season, I saw some behind the scenes thing. And I saw what they were doing with those like 4K video domes. And oh. I was like, I went back and rewatched the whole series again because I was like, you're kidding me. That was practical. Like that's bonkers. And the fact that they just sort of did that. Um, I don't, I don't know. Like I've, I'd heard about some of this stuff coming and I'd seen some early trials and people proof of concepting stuff, but, but to see it put into a, into play and be done so amazingly. And then on top of that, you're, it's not just a technological, like, and that's the thing, right? They could have tried to hedge the bet on it being a technological Marvel. Um, like matrix and bullet time wouldn't be as awesome as it is if the movie hadn't also been good. So right. the fact that Mandalorian is actually a great story and leaning back into all of these Western tropes and episode, you know, like people were giving it crap for that. Like, well, this is just, you know, yeah, it's like gun smoke. The first season was like gun smoke or one of the old like Western serials. You yeah. tune in. It's a different episode every week. Uh, the, the lone wolf and cub type thing. Yeah. And, uh, the ugly and, the, and, and like seven samurai and all this kind of stuff that we've seen this, these little stories, but to like to inject it and to, to put it into that character. But the thing that's really like, and I think season two more so than season one, because obviously um, the, the characters that came into season two coming out of the bigger star Wars universe, like that was always the thing. I think early on when people started hearing that they were going to expand into these shows, especially with the 50, 50 split on every star Wars movie that's come out as to whether or not it's good or not is everybody was afraid. Like you're going to ruin something like, so even when the Mandalorian title was announced, everybody kind of thought, well, this has to be about Boba Fett, right? Oh, they're going to ruin Boba Fett. And then it's like not about Boba Fett yet. Um, and, and it's diving you into this Mandalorian culture. And and then you learn, like, and people don't realize this either. I had to tell my wife after we were watching the second season because I kept telling her, I've been telling her for years, like, you you should watch Rebels. You should watch Clone Wars. Yeah. These are actually, it's like, I'm not going to watch some animated cartoon. I'm like, no, they're actually great stories and mm-hmm. they're fun. And she's like into Mandalorian. And I'm like, it's Dave Filoni. Like, it's the same guy. Like, he's just shooting live action now. Like, it's the same characters, um, you know. We got, I mean, the, the Ahsoka Tano um, episode, I, I think I want to say it was, it was, it was the one up season two. I think it was like episode five, maybe four or five, yeah. just titled The the Jedi. I mean, that, I mean, I, like seeing that character come to life in live action was magical. And they didn't just like they could have just phoned it in and like had her show up. But no, they made it like as badass as possible. Like she's yeah. like a ghost teleporting through the, the mist and everything. And like you said, they they that's an example of them really riffing on like the samurai that episode riffs on both the samurai genre and Western genre at the same time. It's pretty, pretty fantastic. And one that I just want to call out for listeners who might not be familiar, we were talking, you were talking about the technology a few moments ago. Maybe you could provide a little more context here. They, they introduced this new technology that allows yeah. them to shoot on a much closer to a traditional television budget, you know, as opposed to a $250 million star Wars movie, but still make it look pretty consistent. And if I understand correctly, and, and Steven, you can sort of like uh, correct me here if I'm missing something, but it's essentially, they have a really like large dome that surrounds a stage they shoot on and it allows them to sort of set these like really beautiful looking uh, CG backdrops, but then there's still lots of the practical effects that people like, like the puppets and the, you know, um, even like the, the lightsabers, they can have like the traditional like duels and stuff. Um, you know, so, I mean, uh, anyway, it, like it, it, yes, I think it is a great piece of star Wars fiction, but to your point, it's, it's also sort of like paving the way for what, you know, these, 
more cinematic looking TV shows are going to look like in the future. Yeah, I mean, and you, you nailed it. It's it's literally, and this crazy part is, it's kind of like modernizing the oldest trick in the book. Like we're talking about mats, right? Like we're talking about the you know, going back to the westerns that that horizon that was literally a painting that some artist did, but that's like a photorealistic artist, and they're awesome, and they paint this entire wall to look like the span expanse of the desert behind you, but really it's it's a two foot pile of sand and a and a and a can light that's imitating the sun on a soundstage. They were doing that back in, you know, whatever day. It's that exact same concept, except now instead of a painting, it's this big, bad, high resolution video wall. It's so high resolution that you can't tell it's a video wall. And then all they're doing is, and then they're com- they're taking what they, you know, normally they would shoot this on a green screen and they come back in and they composite all that stuff in. They're just taking that step out of it and they realize that, oh, hey, you know, we have technology nowadays that we can render photorealistic stuff in real time. We do it. Everybody does it in their living room on their damn Xbox and PlayStation every day of the week. And so they literally, from my understanding, they're actually using the Unity engine, which is one of the most like widely used 3D platforms for, for video game development. And so in real time, they've created that same virtual set that they would have created um, and composited later, but they're just doing it in real time. And then, so they've connected the camera to it. So as the camera moves, the perspective changes properly. And so if you've ever seen or worked in in anything 3D or seen how they composite that stuff, they're always placing those things in the computer anyways, and then the computer just sort of renders it out. So they're just doing the same thing they've been doing, except they get that result instantaneously. And I can only imagine that even for the actors, that's so much more interesting than standing in front of a green wall. Um, and, and so it's it's almost like, why didn't you, I mean, maybe we just weren't quite there with the power to build these high resolution walls and drive all this stuff. And um, I'm sure they've got a, a, a rack of NVIDIA graphics cards just running that thing to, to high heaven. Um, but it's crazy. And, and, and I think for the, the directors and stuff, I mean, you know, everybody talks about practical effects and that's always been sort of the, the ebb and flow of star Wars, because what made the original trilogy so amazing is it was just 100% practical pretty much. Um, and then you sort of have that full pendulum swing to the, to the new trilogy, the prequel trilogy that almost went like full CGI on, on things they shouldn't have. Um, and now you've kind of landed back in this middle of like, no, the stuff that matters should be practical and the stuff that that doesn't matter can be digital, but let's do digital in a practical way. It's just such a cool hybrid way of, of doing things. And I imagine it's being adopted on so much that we don't even understand at this point. Like I would be I would be surprised if everything we're sawing was on it. In fact, I was recently watching um, talk about big CG related. But I was recently watching uh, Endgame. And I was watching a behind the scenes thing or something. I clicked on something and I literally like jaw dropped, stopped in my tracks. The, the scene where Captain America runs into Captain America and they fight in that office complex and then they fall on the ledge. That whole thing was 100% green screen. Oh, wait, seriously? Yeah. And I, (laughs) I literally like stopped it and I was like, no, there's no way. Like why? And then I went back and watched that scene in the movie and I was like, that's ridiculous i like i, I get now after watching because like, well that makes sense like it'd been really hard to choreograph those falls from multiple floors on these little gantry ways and stuff but man i like 
absolutely pulled the curtain back on myself with that and like had no concept that that was green screen. And so to think that we've excelled, we've improved technology to that level that we can do that so well now, like it's no longer, you know, I, I always, I would compare that to the, the scene in one of the prequel trilogies where they're in the droid factory and it's like such horrible tropey Lucille ball with CGI, like, Oh, I'm going to miss the cutting blade. And <laughs> like, and it looked, you could just tell they were running around on a green stage um, to something that was like mind blowingly not. And, and for a minute, I, like I stopped for a while and had to ask myself, why would you do that? Why wouldn't you just, find a similar looking set and shoot this practically. Why would you do it green screen? And then you realize, well, first off, it's like they're doubling Chris Evans. So they're already doing a ton of CG work on the damn thing. So why not not worry about compositing the background out and, and just put it back. But it's, it's so crazy to me what, what they're doing with film and, and how we're going to adapt these technologies. And, and I see how VR is going to get even deeper and deeper into production. Um, because I mean, that same thing, like, you know, I imagine if I'm if I'm John Favreau and I'm approving set designs for Mandalorian, they're rendering that in such a way. I absolutely guarantee you at some point in that process, that dude puts on a VR headset and walks around in those environments. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's uh, exactly what he did when he was directing The Lion King, uh, the yeah. quote unquote live action, not actually live action. But the, the one that came out the, the couple of years ago, like that was fully directed in, in, in CG, which also you know, makes me think like how much, how much of that was him figuring the technology out for star Wars. So, right. But you know, star Wars has always been that it's the joke of like, um, no new technology is ever really like established until it's used by the porn industry. <laughs> it's sort of the same thing. Like star Wars create has created a lot. It's sort of like that matrix. Like there are some films out there that have created those techniques and technologies that have rippled through all sorts of stuff. I mean, even Nolan, like I think it was dark Knight, Like he was the first person that was like, I need to carry an IMAX camera like on my shoulder. So let's figure out how to make this, this big and not at the back of a truck or whatever it was before. Um, and it, that rippled through to like, now you can shoot all these big format IMAX films because now the camera's smaller because he, he made it, he wanted to do it and he started stripping parts off of it or whatever the hell he did. Even in, you know, going back to interstellar, the scene where he's leaving and driving away in the truck, they, that was the first time I think ever an IMAX was strapped to the side of a vehicle because they finally could. And they're like hundred billion dollar cameras or whatever. Nobody ever wanted to risk it. But um, now, you know, Christopher Nolan probably just does whatever he wants. Now, apparently he does whatever he wants, including telling Warner Brothers that they're making bad decisions, like pretty vocally. But uh, <laughs> um, well, uh, I, I guess uh, to, to, to close it out, I, I have a, a, a little short bonus round we'll close out on. But uh, on the Star Wars side of things, uh, I mean, I, I, too, was uh, generally a pretty big fan of, of Mandalorian season two. I had some gripes here and there, but I'm curious. I mean, it, it seems like uh, coming off that Disney investor briefing in December, We've got Star Wars television coming at us for pretty much forever. Uh, so, like, are you pretty excited about not only the next season of The Mandalorian, but also the the, the future spinoffs for, uh, you know, Ahsoka and uh, Boba Fett and among many others? Yeah, I mean, I think that I hope 
someone high up at Lucasfilm, whether that's Kathleen Kennedy or somebody even higher at Disney or however that hierarchy works, I hope they realize the treasure that they have in John Favreau and Dave Filoni. Um, Cause I don't think there's been a bigger star Wars nerd ever to exist on the planet than Dave Filoni from the videos and stuff I've seen of him talk. Like, I think he legitimately could go toe to toe with anybody you've ever met. And then also he's a great storyteller and he's a great writer and he's, he's got, he understands it so well that he can create these things that, cause you know, I, I pieces of people being div- divisive about star Wars and stuff. Like we said, the last three movies that have come out, we all know they've been pretty much 50, 50, like you either love it or you hate it. Um, maybe force awakens kind of wrote a little more towards everybody seemed to kind of like it. Cause it was, it, it was, it was the classic JJ Abrams mystery box. Like we were all like, what the hell is going on? This is going to be awesome. And, and the problem was taking that long term. And so I hope they, the, they learn from that mistake of like, I think what was strong and even why the prequel trilogies, like I go back and watch those. I never hated them that much to begin with. There are some cringe moments in them. Uh, there's 25 minutes too much pod racing and that sort of stuff. But it was still Lucas and you could kind of see that that thread, that that vision he had was still winding through. It was such a big gap from the original trilogy that we couldn't really see how all the lines connected. Um, so I hope they keep them engaged and I hope they keep them at the top of it. Um, and, and, and if they do, then I'm super excited about it. If I, you know, find out they fire Dave Filoni next week or something, I'll probably be like, well, that's probably not a good idea. That's a um, big major loss. Uh, and I mean, he's a, he, he really in some ways is sort of like, and I think in, the, in a good way is like George Lucas's. Uh, protege i mean yeah. because he they worked so closely together on on clone wars mm-hmm. and i can't remember how involved lucas was with on rebels but definitely clone wars like they were having meetings all the time talking about mm-hmm. this stuff so yeah um, and you've got you've got him so he sort of like carries the torch from lucas and has the vision and understands what star wars is and then john favreau is quickly becoming i think in my mind one of the most influential people in cinema because if you think about the things that he's done from Iron Man and literally kickstarting that to this new technology in Mandalorian to what he did in Lion King. There was something else the other day that I was like, oh my God, I forgot that that was also a Jean Favreau film. Um, as as film lovers and especially the, the nerdy side of film lovers, uh, we definitely owe him a lot. <laughs> um, He's we certainly would- been uh, one of the big movers and shakers in pop culture for the last 10 years. Even if his name hasn't been front and center, he's definitely been behind yeah. the scenes and is, uh, I mean, so far his track record, but I mean, I would say both in terms of like audience reception and box office has been overwhelmingly positive. So, uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, fin- fingers crossed. That's what I was thinking of elf. I forget that elf oh, yeah. is the John Favreau movie. It's like that one comes up a lot because, uh, every, every Christmas time we, we have to show elf at least a couple of times. So. All right, Stephen. Well, uh, it's been a real pleasure uh, just talking with you for the last uh, hour, give or take a few minutes. Uh, what, if our listeners want to keep up with all of the great things you're doing over at Tower Theater and uh, mostly Harmless Media and the Dead Center Film Festival, where can they keep up with you online? Uh, probably the best place where I'm most active is Twitter. Um, I am at S-T-P-H-N-T-Y-L-R. It's my name with no E's. 
Uh, it's the same handle on Instagram. Uh, I believe that's my same profile name or whatever on Facebook. Uh, so people can follow along in most of those places. Uh, follow along on the Tower Theater channels if you want to stay up to date with that. TowerTheaterOKC.com. Theater spelled the classic way with the RE. Um, hop on the mailing list. That's probably the best way to just get the direct. It, everything always goes to the email list first. So if you really want to be on top of everything, it's there. Um, other than that, just uh, be in OKC and, and wander wander around or come by Tower. I'm usually I'm in this building once a day at some point. Um, so whether that's a film or, or, or cocktail at Pony Boy or whatever, that's the best way to find me. Very cool. Uh, well, uh, Steven, anything you'd like to add about any of the three films that you chose today or other methods that people can support all of your work at dead center and mostly harmless media and tower. I'm looking forward to seeing tenant on the big screen. Um, and I'll always be looking forward to the next Christopher Nolan film. Um, it did trigger me to watch a few others. I think I rewatched Inception this year. I think, and I obviously I told you I watched Dunkirk for the first time. And, um, Dead Center film is going to be interesting uh, this year. Like I've said, it's going to be some sort of hybrid deadcenterfilm.org for more information on that. Passes, all that stuff. Uh, I know they're screening films right now for the festival, so it's definitely on, on board. Always support them any way you can. They've got great merch. Um, also, buying passes is one of the best ways to do that. No, mostly harmless pops up in weird places. Um, so you never know what, what I'm, I'm doing. Like I said, it's sort of my catch all for my weird technical consulting. So whether that's films and podcasts or lighting installations or even people's Wi-Fi networks, <laughs> we, I've helped them do everything. So you never know where I'll be next. Very cool. Well, uh, Steven Tyler, managing partner at Tower Theater, director of technology at Dead Center and founder of uh, Mostly Harmless Media. Thanks so much for joining the Cinematic Schematic today. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in to part eight of our ongoing series on three films that got you through the 2020 pandemic with today's special guest, Steven Tyler of the Tower Theater here in Oklahoma City. Stay tuned to hear who we'll be talking with in our next episode. Now, if you did enjoy today's conversation with Steven, I hope you'll consider rating the podcast and subscribing on your preferred podcast app. You can also follow all of our work on The Cinematropolis by heading over to Twitter and following us at The Cinematrop or heading over to Facebook and going to facebook.com forward slash The Cinematropolis. And of course, you can also find more of my work personally on Twitter at CMasterstalk. That is letter C, Masters Talk. Now, listeners, we just completed part eight of this series, which means we are at the tail end. We've got two more interviews left. I wanted to give you a quick sneak peek at what you can expect over the next couple of weeks. We have two more interviews in this series to round out the 10 episodes that were promised. Plus, we do have one additional bonus interview with another special guest, Charles Elmore, who is a local filmmaker working here in Oklahoma on a number of films, including the likes of the Oscar-nominated Minari. Additionally, we have a review for Mortal Kombat. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to be taking a look at another video game adaptation to see if they can pull it out. So you want to make sure to, to stay tuned for that as well. And for those of you who are Oscar lovers, I will have a little bit to offer with my friend LaRon Chapman here later this week on the 2021 Oscars predictions. So make sure to stay tuned for that as well. 
So with that said, let's go ahead and talk about our next episode. Make sure to join me when I talk with the Oklahoma Film and Music Office Outreach and Production Manager, Yusuf Kazmi. I'll talk with Yusuf about his three film selections, as well as how the pandemic impacted all of the great work being done here in the film industry in Oklahoma, as well as at the Oklahoma Film and Music Office. You won't want to miss it. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll catch you again next time. 